Lots of stuff to get into tonight on a Wednesday evening here on Closing Argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can catch up on past shows, and I highly recommend you do. Uh, We have uh, a show from last evening where I wasn't even here. That was fascinating to listen to. Listening to Closing Argument as Walter Hudson, not knowing what's going to be said, is uh, something new for me, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Brad Omlin sitting in the big chair yesterday. How'd you enjoy that? It was a new perspective. I It wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be. It's not hard. Um, it <laughs> just hard. kind of goes, which sure. was nice. Yep. But it was certainly a change in perspective. Absolutely. And you're going to get a lot more opportunities to do that. You're going to get a lot more opportunities to hear Brad and varied guest hosts along with him. You know, we've up to this point, we've been on the air for about a year and a half to be rejected. And so... There's a there's a big circle that we can draw around not just conservatives and Republicans, but also against classical lib- or around classical liberals and libertarians and basically everybody who is not on the left, which, by the way, is a super majority of the country. Right. There's a big circle we could draw around those people around us and just look at the left. And when we just look at the left, we realize that they have this sense of total war against the rest of us. Now, here's here's the the part, the, the premise that I want to submit for your consideration, because I bet you agree with me up to this point. Most of you do. We make the mistake, in my view, and I'm open to I'm open to debate on this. Six, five, one, nine, eight, nine, five, eight, five, five. We make the mistake on our side. Of mocking them for and we've done it here on the show. Mocking the left for their in, for their seeming insanity, for their sense of urgency, for their hair on fire, rending of robes, gnashing of teeth, total war mentality, you know, crying in the streets, taking to the streets, acting as though the world is ending. We mock them for that to a large degree with merit. We should. We should. However, here's a curveball. I think the mistake we make is that we we submit as an alternative to that what you might regard as decency, right? The idea that well, there's there's a civilized way of conducting yourself, and this is this is manifest to one degree or another by John McCain. The passing of John McCain we saw last week, he was cited as an example of statesmanship and civility and rational discourse. Right. This this is a guy who was decent and who could acknowledge the good in his opponent and his opposition. And oh, isn't that wonderful? And all things being equal, yes, that would be wonderful. Right. If in a in a situation where we actually had good faith differences of opinion on matters of politics within this within the agreed upon context of. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. We would be able to proceed under the premise that everyone's decent and ought to be treated with good faith and ought to be treated with a certain amount of respect and what have you. But that's not the circumstance that we find ourselves in. The circumstance we find ourselves in is we have an organized leftist insurgency 
within this country that is fundamentally opposed to our freedom. They're fundamentally opposed to our existence as free, rational, independent human beings in full ownership of our own lives. They are, quite frankly, our enemies. They're our enemies. They are immoral. They are evil. They advocate for ideas and policies which are a violation of our rights, which are a detriment to life itself, and which need to be opposed and stopped. Full stop. Period. End of story. No compromise. That's the situation that we find ourselves in. So the question becomes, which side should in fact be adopting this total war mentality? And what I would submit to you is that we're the ones who ought to be behaving this way. We're the ones. And, you know, take the, I'll, we can chew this over. We can think about this. We got, you know, two hours tonight. We'll talk about other topics. We can come back to it. We should be the ones who are willing to throw civility out the window. We are the ones who should be willing to take to the streets. We are the ones who should be willing to overturn the game tables and overturn the way things are done in order to defeat our political opponents because it's not just about politics, it's about our very existence. And this is the narrative that the left buys into about us. The difference is, and this is key, the difference is we're actually correct. When we when we present when we portray them as being immoral, evil, and a threat to life, we actually can make the objective, rational case that that is true. They are lying. They are faking it. They are faking their moral authority. We actually have it, and it's about time we started to act like it. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So let's get into some of these stories and apply my presented premise that I've offered here at the start of the show. That being that the the left is proceeding as if they are in a fight for their lives, right? And they are proceeding having seized a sense of moral authority and not granting an inch of moral equivalency or moral legitimacy to their opposition, which is anybody who's not on the left. If you are not on the left, whether you're a Republican, a conservative, a libertarian, a classical liberal, a Democrat who's not socialist enough, whatever the case may be, if you're anything other than a hardcore leftist, then you are castigated as not just a reasonable person who has a differing opinion, but as an immoral, vile human being who ought to be rejected, who ought to lose your job, who ought to never be able to to work again, who ought to have things taken from you, potentially be jailed and punched in the face, whatever the case may be. They have declared total war against their political opposition, and they've done so as if they are morally righteous and everyone else other than them is morally evil. And what I'm suggesting is that we need to flip that script. We need to be treating them as if they are evil. We need to be treating them as if they need to be defeated and shunned and rejected and cast outside of institutions and outside of polite society. The difference is this is not, I'm not preaching something that is hypocritical here, wherein I'm saying they shouldn't act that way, but we should. What I'm suggesting is the premise 
that they falsely adopt, which is that they are good and we are evil, is the inverse of the truth. The opposite is true. We are good. We are standing on righteousness, and they are evil. They are seeking to undermine that which is righteous, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That makes them the ones who ought to be castigated. That makes them the ones who ought to be losing their jobs, who ought to be banned from institutions, who who ought to be undermined in every conceivable way, short of violating their rights. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Let's start with uh, Sue in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hi. I know you don't mean that. I mean, you're presenting it as, as a way to start an argument, but I know that you, as much as you've spoken, you speak a lot about civility and, and such and uh, the morality of your principles. Mm-hmm. And so I know that you, 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 dis, you disagree with that. You, you do not think that we should be uh, treating them like they're evil. No, I do. <laughs> no, I really do. No, listen. Here's here's the thing. No, here's here's the thing. This is not this is not a change. This is not a change in my position. This is an application of my position. Yet, should we be civil, generally speaking, all things being equal? Absolutely. Should we be able to have rational, civil conversations where there's good faith? Yeah, absolutely. But you can't do that. You can't be civil with somebody who will not be civil to you. You cannot have a conversation in good faith with somebody who has none. That There must be a mutual, there has to be some sort of common ground. There has to be some sort of basis upon which you can proceed. And we're dealing with, and I'm talking about the hardcore left, I'm talking about the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes of the world, the Bernie Sanders of the world, you know, the, the Michael Moores of the world, and the Nancy Pelosi's and what have you. There, there is a segment of the population who holds a outsized proportion of power in institutions that is fundamentally opposed to our life, our liberty, and our property, and that makes them our enemy, and we need to start treating them as such. We cannot engage them. And because here's the thing, that that's what they're doing to us. And I'm not saying that their behavior makes it makes it okay. What I'm saying is they're acting as though they are the ones who are standing in the light of righteousness when the truth is the opposite. They are the ones who are standing against righteousness. They are the ones who are standing against life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And they're the ones who ought to be treated the way that they treat everybody else. I agree with you on that. But, 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 but with a slight difference, I don't think we should become the almost animals that they are. When you listen to what they did in, in the um, investigation of the Supreme Court justice, the Kavanaugh hearings. Yeah, we're about to get into that. That was an abomination. But and, and I think they are extremely dangerous people. Um, for example, I think they're 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 not just uh, propagandizing the children and ra- raising children up in the schools to become that way. I think they're they're affecting our minds too. At least mine to a certain No, I, I know exactly I what you're saying. To say, do I dare use the word denigrate? Well, <laughs> I don't know. And it, it, it's, 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 it's having a huge effect on sure. So I, I think that we should be doing something different. But I'm not going to wear run around wearing a pink knit hat of something. Of no, 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 no. And, and, I'm not, and look, I'm not, I'm not suggesting throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. And, and I appreciate your call, Sue, and I appreciate your, your reining this in to some extent. Because Sue's on to something. I believe, and you know, hopefully we'll be able to get into this later in the program, 
I believe that Donald Trump, the ascendancy of Donald Trump, is a manifestation of exactly what I'm talking about. There, there's obviously a large constituency out there on the right within the Republican Party, within conservatism, a large constituency that is sick and tired of taking punches, that's sick and tired of being called racist and sexist and homophobic and anti-this and anti-that and being castigated as being evil and having the, having their good faith, not being able to have that taken for granted and what have you. And they're so sick of it. They're so sick of being treated like the enemy instead of like a neighbor that they've decided that they need, we need to fight back. We need to fight fire with fire. And that I, I am, I am not advocating just the mirror image. I'm not saying we do what the left does just because the left does it. I'm talking about targeting it, targeting it against specific people, specific ideas. And and doing so from a specific vantage point that Donald Trump does not stand on, and we're gonna we're gonna get into this as we move forward. You know, this this is the the uh, the nuance within this anonymous op-ed that was put out in the New York Times earlier today, where there there's things of value that we should be grasping onto, even as we descend into the analysis of oh what did this mean you know is this real is this fake news what was this guy's motivation how underhanded is it is he a traitor or not is one of the things that trump uh, tweeted out today even as we parse through all that at the end of it all or in addition to the parsing we also need to pause and ask what if this is genuine what if this what does this say about our current situation that we actually need to take with a grain of salt, but take seriously. 651-989-5855. When we return, we'll be talking to the author of a piece over at USA Today entitled My Family Escaped Socialism. Now Democrats want to take my party in that direction. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Last week... We discussed an op-ed in USA Today regarding a Democratic activist, written by a Democratic activist, who is recognizing a trend within his party that he finds disturbing, and that is the rising influence of socialism. And, you know, not, not socialism in the, you know, oh, I like Medicare sense of the word. We'll, we'll get into that later in the program. The, the varying degrees, the varying uh, shades of socialism, but hardcore socialism of the type that uh, this gentleman's family escaped when they fled Cuba during uh, its revolution. We now have on the line Giancarlo Sopa, who's joining us this evening on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing? Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. appreciate you making the time to come on with us this evening. So for our listeners, can you summarize your piece here in USA Today? Give us a little bit of your family history and you know what, what you've been doing within the Democratic Party and what has sparked your recent concern. Yeah, sure. So I'm a Cuban-American. I was born and raised here in North Havana, a.k.a. Miami. Uh, and uh, I come from, like I said, I come from a Cuban family. Uh, I've, I've been involved in democratic politics uh, probably since about 2004 when I started volunteering uh, for John Kerry's campaign. I volunteered on both uh, pre- both the President Obama's campaigns. And then in 2016, my wife and I drove uh, 14 hours 
from Virginia to Tampa to uh, volunteer for Hillary Clinton. So I've uh, always been uh, committed to the cause, but, uh, you know, I've always also been highly suspicious of socialism, and it always seemed to me that those who, that who, who were promoting socialism within my party were kind of like, you know, like these crazy fringe elements that mm-hmm. you have to really worry about. Right. But it, it's become increasingly clear to me uh, within the past year or so that uh, I don't know if it's part of the Trump derangement syndrome that uh, half the country or more is going through, but um, there, you know the, the socialist voices within the Democratic Party are increasingly uh, gaining prominence, and you even had on the night of the election uh, or shortly thereafter of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez in New York, you had the the DNC chairman come out and say that this was the future of the party. Right. And in the following week, you had all sorts of prominent Democrats essentially tell you know tell people like me, listen, you need to shut up and get in line. Right. Uh, but I'm I'm not the kind of person who takes orders like that. Right. Uh, so I, I you know I'm 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 Cuban. I I don't take you know um, I, I don't suffer fools gladly. So uh, I decided to write the op ed to make it clear that democratic socialism or socialism, whatever you want to call it, that it's not what people think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most people associate it with places like Denmark and Norway or whatever. Right. Those are actually capitalist countries. I mean, what we're talking about, which is what the democratic socialists and groups like DSA are promoting, is hardcore socialism, the kind that my family fled from uh, in Cuba, and also the kind that millions of people in my community from Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Argentina, they fled in, in their countries. Uh, during various, uh, you know, various socialist regimes you've had in those countries over the years. So it's something that I'm intimately familiar with, not just because of my family history, uh, but also because I grew up in South Florida. And a quick blurb about my family history. Uh, on my mom's side, um, they were actually, it was funny, they were actually in the U.S. In the, in the 1950s for, you know, various family reasons. And then they moved back right after Castro comes to power. Uh, because my grandmother's mom got really sick and they wanted to be with her. And then they were stuck in, in Cuba for 20 years uh, trying to get out. And my grandfather tried to flee, and he was essentially stripped of his job as an accountant and demoted to cleaning zoo cages um, and placed on minimum wage, which, you know, you can imagine in a, in a, in a socialist country, uh, you know, it pays next to nothing. Right. You know, and that's how my mom said it on my dad's side. My father was in the Bay of Pigs invasion that tried to liberate Cuba, and his dad, my grandfather, uh, died as a political prisoner uh, about you know, 24 years before I was born, so I never met him. Uh, but his only crime was just not being a communist. He was, uh, he was a doctor, and he was, he was jailed, and um, he died in prison. So it's something that hits close to home, but also something that I see in my community lives on a daily basis. I think it's funny because most Americans... Uh, I went to school up in, nor- in the Northeast, and, you know, I, I, I travel frequently around the country. In most parts of the country, uh, Americans aren't really exposed to news out of Latin America. But in Miami, it's it's on the 6 o'clock and 11 o'clock news hour, like on a daily basis. So you, you, you have your local news, and then they, they usually do a segment or two about what's happening in Latin America. So uh, the realities of socialism or democratic socialism, whatever they want to call it, are very present in our minds because it's something that we live through on a daily basis. Um, 
so it's harder to pull the wool over our, our eyes. We're talking to John Carlos Sopa, who wrote an article in the USA Today, an op-ed, talking about uh, his experience coming from a family that escaped socialist Cuba. He has uh, acted as a Democratic activist within that party and supported a number of prominent campaigns, John Kerry's campaign, Barack Obama's campaign, Hillary Clinton's campaign, and now uh, finds himself facing a scenario where the the rise of democratic socialism is prevalent within the Democratic Party and it's raising red flags. My question for you, as somebody who, you know, from the outside looking in, somebody who's not a Democrat, never has been, what, how, how would you describe the the non-socialist democratic platform which appealed to you coming from your background as as somebody who came out of a a cuban family that escaped socialism there yeah so that's a great question i mean so growing up i saw how my parents uh, or rather how my grandparents benefited from medicare uh it was tremendously helpful because when they came to this country they were almost, I mean, just imagine how horrible the situation was in Cuba that at 60 years old, they said, we'd rather leave what little we have behind and start completely anew at, at right. 60. Yeah, right. Um, so they worked, when they came to this country, they worked as janitors, and uh, then, you know, they were able to, you know, benefit from Medicare and it saved their lives. So my, my mom, she, growing up, uh, you know, she barely spoke English, so she worked as a social worker helping um, you know, like geriatric, like elderly patients. So I saw the government do positive things, and I still think the government can do positive things if it's if it's done, you know, if it's led by honorable people and works within, you know, like these strict constitutional limits. Um, that's one thing. I think that's what like most Democrats believe in, and I think if you just if you start talking to people on a personal basis, that's that's where they are. I'm, I'm also from a state that's been historically moderate, right? Like this is a state that you know, like had Bob Graham and Lawton Child. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the Democrats who I who I grew up with. So on that front, I mean, I, I've always felt very comfortable within the Democratic Party here in Florida. But what I'm starting to see now at a, at a national level is that, like, this is no longer Bob Graham's party. I mean, right. uh, you know, this, it's a very, things are changing in towards, like, this intersectional identity politics direction. Right. And also, that's on that's on the identity politics side, and then on on the economic side, I, we're we're way past FDR. Um, that's not what I signed up for. It's not what I think most people believe in. Uh, but there are some, I would say, you know, more than a handful of people within the upper echelons of the party who view this as an opportunity to get young people excited. Right. Uh, I yeah. guess they've run out of ideas. So they're willing to uh, leverage the ignorance of a lot of young people and misinform them right. uh, just so that they can net political benefits for themselves. and, and Short-term for- political benefits. I mean, that's always a dangerous yeah. strategy. You know, speaking as, as somebody who, on, on the right side of the spectrum, has been part of an insurgent movement, the Tea Party, you know, when you yeah. have uh, establishment folks make promises or latch onto ideas and exaggerate them, expound upon them in such a way that it's undeliverable, all you're doing is setting yourself up to have a very angry constituency that's going to turn on you down the road. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think uh, the the promises uh, that, that politicians make to get these people aligned with them, like, you know, to get, like, groups like DSA on board, uh, th- those people are never... It, it, it's like a fool's errand, right? Like, 
you're never going to make those people happy because right. they're, it, it's, an, it's an ideological problem. There's no amount of egalitarianism that makes these people happy. I mean, because you even have communists and socialists in Denmark, which doesn't have nearly as much of like the wage disparities that we have here, right? It's like mm. a really flat society. Right. And you have a communist party there. It's, it's an ideological problem that these people have. It's, there's, not, there's no amount of equality that will make them happy because, um, I don't know, I, I, I can't explain it. It's just like I, I thought in my family's country, I've been to Cuba myself, like my, my wife is from Cuba. Right. Uh, it's just a, it's a mentality. It's just people are are, are crazy. Well, I mean, when you think about, when you think about what has to happen in a person's mind and spirit and soul for them to get to the point where they're, where they were part of the, uh, communist Chinese party or establishment or the part of the the socialist Cubist, Cuban, uh, establishment to where you're actively subjugating individuals, murdering them, oppressing them. In order to justify that in your own mind, you have to have some sort of sense of moral authority. And I think that right. the, the socialists, wherever they are, wherever they find themselves uh, active, have that sense of we're getting after something that's better and therefore anything is justified. And that's a very dangerous position to proceed from. Very much appreciate you joining us tonight, John Carlos Sopo. Uh, you could find his piece at USA Today. We'll go ahead and tweet it out. Thanks for joining us tonight on Closing Argument. My pleasure. Have a good evening. Thank you. You too. 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Let's finally get into these stories coming out of the Kavanaugh hearings in the Senate. A attempt to confirm the nomination by President Donald Trump uh, of his pick for Supreme Court. And it is uh, predictably not going smoothly. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. From Politico. Progressive groups have a blunt assessment of Senator Chuck Schumer's work to defeat Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. You are failing us. Thirteen liberal groups have signed on to a letter delivered Wednesday morning that pans the minority leader's strategy of stopping President Donald Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court. They say that the Democratic Party's progressive base expects nothing less than all-out resistance to Trump's dangerous agenda and question whether Schumer is delivering it. Now, this resonates, does it not, with what I let off the show with this evening, which is the notion that on the left, they have declared total war against their opposition. I mean, they say it right here. This is a direct quote from this letter by 13 liberal groups. Quote, the Democratic Party's progressive base expects nothing less than all-out resistance to Trump's dangerous agenda, unquote. There's no room for compromise in that. There's no room for, for negotiation. There's no conceding the potential for good faith amongst their political opposition. There's no, there's no sentiment in there regarding the decency and the, the, the essential human goodness of Republicans or conservatives or certainly Donald Trump himself. No room for that whatsoever. Just complete categorical condemnation of their opponents. Total war. And what I'm suggesting to you is that the irony here is that's how we 
ought to be handling them. That's the attitude that we ought to have against them because they actually do warrant that level of condemnation. They actually do warrant not being granted any benefit of doubt, not being granted any sort of moral legitimacy, any sort of moral equivalence, because they are not morally equivalent. They are evil. They are standing against our lives, our liberty, and our pursuit of happiness, certainly our property, and therefore should not be treated as though, oh, they're just decent, nice people, our neighbors, who we have you know, meaningful disagreements with. It's more than a meaningful disagreement. It's existential. Continuing at Politico. Schumer is grappling with multiple challenges, a base that wants him to stop Kavanaugh, even though Republicans can confirm him without Democratic help, as well as a brutal midterm map and vulnerable incumbents who are under pressure to support Trump's pick. Senate Democrats have largely united behind Schumer's strategy of demanding documents and disrupting the Judiciary Committee's hearing, but liberal groups say it's not enough. Your job, then this is again the letter from the 13 liberal groups, to Chuck Schumer, your job as Senate Democratic leader is to lead your caucus in complete opposition to Trump's attempted Supreme Court takeover. Just just pause to appreciate the absurdity of that rhetoric. Supreme Court takeover. He's the president of the United States. There's a vacancy. He gets to make an appointment. He gets to make a nomination. It wasn't a court packing scheme. Yeah, right, which is what they're advocating for, many of them, right now. Like, they are the ones who are advocating for a takeover. They are the ones who are advocating for mechanisms by which to subvert the process here. And, in fact, they're the ones who gave us the context in which Republicans can confirm Brett Kavanaugh without any of their help. Because they got rid of the filibuster rule. They got rid of the protections that the minority had, and now they're in the minority. Sucks, don't it? Right. They continue after they say your job as Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer is to lead your caucus in complete opposition to Trump's attempted takeover of the Supreme Court and to defend everyone threatened by a Trump Supreme Court. But unbelievably, nearly two dozen Democrats have still not come out against Kavanaugh. That is not the leadership we need, they wrote. Among the signees to this letter are credo mobile, indefensible, or yeah, I, I, that was a that was a Freudian slip there. Indivisible, democracy for America and daily costs move on and demand justice. Groups trying to defeat Kavanaugh did not sign on. Republicans are targeting Democratic senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, and Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota as potential Kavanaugh supporters. Schumer is not whipping those members hard against the nominee, but is encouraging everyone to keep their powder dry at least until after Kavanaugh's hearings. Also involving, well, well, we'll skip this piece about the, there's another piece here at the Star Tribune where they talk about the, how Kavanaugh isn't giving direct answers to politically charged questions, particularly when it comes to, to whether or not Trump can pardon himself or or uh, whether or not the president can be subpoenaed and what have you. And this is, this is a non-story. This is typical post-Bork scotus hearings this is what you would expect no matter who the president was or who the nominee was we live in a world where you're not going to get direct answers to how would you rule in this particular case from a supreme court nominee after bork and that has remained consistent over the years nothing particularly new there there's a piece at the washington post trump suggests that protesting should be illegal i don't want to touch upon this when we come back when we get on the other side of the break because this headline and the opening couple of paragraphs and the notion that Trump 
said that protesting as such should be illegal is this is fake news this is absolute 100 total fake news we'll get into it when we return closing argument my name is walter hudson twincitiesnewstalk.com star trek fans will appreciate this tweet brent spinner who portrayed the character of Data in The Next Generation, tweeted out, If an anonymous op-ed piece ever appears in the New York Times disparaging my good name, know now it was written by Michael Dorn, who, of course, was the actor who portrayed Worf. Good stuff there. Good stuff. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omlin takes your calls and produces the show. And indeed, an op-ed disparaging someone's good name did appear in the in the New York Times anonymously earlier today. And it is something else. This uh, this It's so strange to see an opinion piece in the New York Times at nytimes.com with no byline. But that's what we got here. I mean, like a blog post or something, you know, like somebody's <laughs> like somebody's WordPress blog, only it's the New York Times, no byline, an anonymous person who's credited as being a, quote, senior Trump official, senior Trump administration official. And they just kind of go on and we'll read it here momentarily. But the the gist of it is. Trump's irresponsible, Trump's erratic, Trump's a child, and there are those of us within the administration who are acting to rein him in. Don't worry, we're on it. There are adults in the room. We got this. Now, when I first read this, my initial response was befuddlement. I I, I was confused as to why the New York Times would allow this and why whoever wrote it assuming that it was, in fact, a senior administration official in the Trump White House, why they would have written it. Because it occurs to me, and you know, if you judge by the comments section at the New York Times, it occurs to me that this doesn't really accomplish anything for anyone. Like, at face value, at a cursory examination, this really doesn't do anything for anybody. Because, because it's anonymous... It, it lacks the impact that it would otherwise have if, you know, if you put John Kelly's name on this or if you put Reince Priebus's name on this or if you put a name on this of somebody who we know who holds a position of prominence within the administration and they resigned and then put out this op-ed, that would have some weight to it. That could potentially at least get a conversation started. But when you don't know who the source is, that undermines the credibility significantly and it also leaves us with with a sense of just a complete lack of impact in terms of you're left unimpressed, no matter what side you're on. The, the, the Democrats, and again, this is anecdotally judging by the comment section, the liberals, the resistance, the hardcore anti-Trump folks, they're not impressed by this. They're not like, oh, thank you, anonymous person, for coming out and telling us what we already think about Donald Trump. If anything, they're calling the guy a coward. They're saying, well, why, if this is what you really believe about him, why are you still working for him? 
If this is what you really believe about him, why aren't you coming out and denouncing him and putting your name behind it? And then people on the right, of course, are, are reacting, you know, making the similar conclusions from the other side, which is, if you really believe this, you know, why are you being a coward? Why are you staying in the sh shadows? Why are you sniping? You know, from my personal perspective, as somebody who has been to varying degrees at various times, highly critical of Donald Trump, I, I'm not particularly fond of this idea of, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to step out and say these things and not put my name on it. Like, where's your, you, you don't care enough to put your money where your mouth is to actually put your face and your name to the, the accusations that you're making to the takes that you're offering. It's not important enough. Like what's at stake, which goes to the question of why would the New York times print it? And I can understand keeping a source anonymous or keeping the author of an op-ed in particular anonymous if their life was threatened. So if this was an op-ed from somebody who was like inside the mafia and they, they were telling us what life is like inside the mafia and how horrible it is and advocating for what needs to be done in order to stop the mafia, I would understand keeping that person anonymous because if they were identified, they might be killed. But Trump, you know, despite his bluster, and we'll get into the bluster here momentarily, Trump is not going to kill whoever authored this op-ed. This person's life is not in danger. In fact, the only thing that's really at risk is their immediate political position. You know, perhaps their future career in politics. And if that's all you're, if that's what you're trying to protect by remaining anonymous, well, then you're just a coward, right? Like there's, that's not something that if you really believe these things, if you really believe that there's something profound at stake, that you wouldn't be willing to lose something in opposition to it. Here's the content of this op-ed. President Trump is facing a test to his presidency unlike any faced by a modern American leader. It's not just that the special counsel looms large or that the country is bitterly divided over Mr. Trump's leadership or even that his party might well lose the House to an opponent hell-bent on his downfall. The dilemma, which he does not fully grasp, is that many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within to frustrate parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations. I would know I am one of them. To be clear, ours is not the popular resistance of the left, we want the administration to succeed and think that many of its policies have already made America safer and more prosperous, but we believe our first duty is to this country, and the president continues to act in a manner that is detrimental to the health of our republic. That is why many Trump appointees have vowed to do what we can to preserve our democratic institutions while thwarting Mr. Trump's more misguided impulses until he is out of office. The root of the problem is the president's amorality. Anyone who works with him knows he is not moored to any discernible first principles that guide his decision-making. Although he was elected as a Republican, the president shows little affinity for ideals long espoused by conservatives, free minds, free markets, and free people. At best, he has invoked these ideals in scripted settings. At worst, he has attacked them outright. In addition to his mass marketing of the notion that the press is the enemy of the people, President Trump's impulses are generally anti-trade and anti-democratic. Don't get me wrong, there are bright spots that the near-ceaseless negative coverage of the administration fails to capture, 
effective deregulation, historic tax reform, a more robust military, and more. But these successes have come despite, not because of, the president's leadership style, which is impetuous, adversarial, petty, and ineffective. And it goes on and on and on like that. And again, this is an anonymous op-ed at the New York Times purported to have been written by a senior Trump administration official. The response to this from the White House and from Donald Trump himself was predictably explosive from the Star Tribune. In a striking anonymous broadside, a senior Trump administration official wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times on Wednesday claiming to be part of a group of people working diligently from within to impede President Donald Trump's worst inclinations and ill-conceived parts of his agenda. Trump said it was a gutless editorial and really a disgrace, and his press secretary called on the official to resign. Trump later tweeted, Treason? Question mark, all caps. And in an extraordinary move demanded that if the gutless anonymous person does not indeed or does indeed exist the times must for national security purposes turn him or her over to the government at once now holy moly holy moly it sounds like the guy we had on that called in last night who said the government should crush them let's just pause to talk about that guy for a minute all right i johnny i think his name was oh my lord yeah, you need to go search for closing argument in your iHeartRadio app and listen to the second hour. Uh, Max Reimer and Brad Omlin filled in for me last night. They had this call on Johnny, who basically made the argument that our rights are granted to us by the existence of the military. And it was one of the most absurd takes on the nature of rights that I have ever heard. I, I mean, I'm going to assume he just kind of tripped into it like he got caught up in it i'll give him the benefit of the doubt anyways because you know i've gotten into arguments with conservatives before about rights and where they come from and it just seems to be a fundamental misunderstanding of their source sure which and and look if we presume good faith right which we should be able to if we presume good faith then what that speaks to is a a lack of civics education, yeah. a lack of civics understanding. But that's a huge problem because not understanding basic civics, not understanding how rights work and how a republic works and how the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence work, not understanding those things is akin to being a couple of degrees off on your course or your heading, you know, if you're in an airplane or on a ship or something. Like being a couple of degrees off or more than a couple of degrees off is go- the longer you're off course, the more divergent you're going to be from where you're supposed to go. And increasingly, it seems as though we find ourselves in this country in a place where so many people across the political spectrum lack a basic understanding of how any of this works. And in fact, that was one of the, the responses. I think it was S.E. Cup retweeted Trump's tweet here. Here's the full tweet by Donald Trump. Does the so-called senior administration official who wrote the anonymous New York Times piece really exist? Or is this just the failing New York Times with another phony source? If the gutless anonymous person does indeed exist, the Times must, for national security purposes, turn him or her over to the government at once. I think it was S.E. Cup who retweeted this with the comment, that's not how any of this works. <laughs> and that's true. Like, 
nothing he said there is is indicative or reflective of how a constitutional republic actually functions. Like you, you don't turn over. Like let me tell you what the context in which you turn over a anonymous author to the government: communist China, fascist Nazi Germany, right? Like the the, the socialist Cubans. The socialist Venezuelans. That's the context in which you turn over journalists, turn over op-ed writers, turn over sources to the government. Well, even recently in uh, Myanmar, two Reuters journalists were framed by the government. Literally, they walked into a coffee shop to meet a source of some sort, and and it was set up by the government. The, go- the source from the government handed them these secret documents, and then they were arrested. Mm. So it, it happens. It is happening today. Those journalists right. got sentenced to seven years in prison. Well, and look, the only thing, and this is this is I'm not exaggerating, this is the truth. The only thing keeping us from becoming that is the understanding of the people, the conviction amongst you and I and our fellow Americans that we will not allow it. The conviction that no matter whether it's Donald Trump or one of our fellow Republicans or somebody that we agree with on 95% of the issues, that we will never allow these fundamental rights to be violated. And look, we can we can talk about, and I'm more than happy to talk about the the value and the the credibility of an anonymous op-ed supposedly written by a Trump official. But to me, the real story in all of this is Trump's tweet. It's Trump's tweet. It's for, for him to come out and, and demand that the New York Times turn this person over to the government completely validates whether the, the op-ed itself could be completely fake. It could be totally made up. But he just exhibited exactly what the op-ed speaks to. The medium is the message. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk.com. Debating which of these two stories to get into here first, coming out of our analysis of the anonymous op-ed that was supposedly written by a senior Trump administration official at the New York Times. Uh, the the thesis of which, you know, if I had to summarize it, was Trump doesn't know what he's doing, but there's a lot of us uh, within his administration who do, and we're doing what we can in order to keep the wheels on the bus or the train on the track or however you want to phrase it. And that was basically what the op-ed said. And, you know, when I ask myself, or when I put further consideration into, because my initial reaction to this is, why would you, why would you even write this? What was the point of writing this? And if you're the New York Times, why do you publish it? Because it's not like this is somebody whose life is in danger. It's not like it's somebody who, if if they if they were revealed, if their identity was revealed, they'd be killed, right? They would certainly be threatened, but. Not in a significant way. They'd be threatened in the same way that anybody who offers any kind of opinion or political position is threatened. They would receive death threats. I guarantee it. Okay. Well, they're <laughs> from who though? And and to what to a degree higher than anybody who's in p- the public space gets death threats. It's still significant, and uh, 
my guess is that they're doing it because they know that they can further an agenda beyond like they can they can start the talking point here and go you know this is what we're receiving anonymously i assume that the new york times knows who is publishing it oh yeah they say they do and editor and editorially they say okay yeah we're comfortable because we we know that this person is at least the person who they say they are. Well, let's 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 cut to the chase because we could get lost in the weeds of trying to figure out, you know, finding whatever the the uh, turning point is or the 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 point of no return past which you determine when it's okay to publish something that's anonymous. It occurs to me that the most likely motivation on the part of both the New York Times and whoever wrote this. What their most likely motivation is, is sowing chaos within the administration. That's the point. Because look at Donald Trump's reaction. He's he's completely unhinged. He's angry. He's stomping around. He's looking for a head to roll. He's publicly calling for the New York Times to turn into the government, whoever wrote this, right? Now, he doesn't know who it is. And he's surrounded by suspects. He's surrounded by people, one of whom he knows or suspects wrote this. Was a traitor. He called the guy a traitor on Twitter, right? Or gal. Well, this isn't anything new in the Trump administration, though, like leaking and exposés. But nothing like this has happened. Like this, this is unique in this, in the sense of, you know, somebody actually explicitly saying, this is what we think of Donald Trump. Sure. And putting it in the New York Times. And so from this point forward, they can't have productive conversations in the White House. Like, he can't have a meeting with his staff, with his cabinet, with with his staffers, with the people around him. He can't have a meeting and talk openly and freely about what it is that they want to do and the direction they want to go and how they want to get there without the... The expectation, not just the suspicion, but the expectation that it will be leaked, that it will be undermined without the knowledge that there is potentially a whole group of people within his administration who are working to undermine his agenda. That that leaves him in a position that's untenable. Well, if you believe uh, the book by Bob Woodward, it's true. Well, and and that it, it all it does fold into that. And so. Ultimately, and this is kind of my bottom line on the whole thing, ultimately it doesn't matter how true or how false this op-ed is, and it doesn't matter how true or how false the Woodward book is. The effect is the same, and that is to sow doubt and chaos within the Trump White House to where they can't function, they can't proceed as a a well-oiled or even moderately oiled machine that can that can work on anything and accomplish anything and get anything done. This is a very effective attack on the ability of the Trump administration to do anything going forward and they're going to have a very hard time. Basically the only thing he could do at this point would be to literally fire everybody. To just fire everybody and start from scratch, start fresh. And I don't know how you would vet the new people that you bring in to make sure that they're going to be loyal, to make sure that they're not going to run off to the New York Times and write an anonymous op-ed. And, you know, maybe if this is fake, if this is something that's made up, what and you did fire everybody, 
then you're just setting yourself up for a situation where they can write another fake op-ed down the road and get you to fire everybody again. Just start hiring the proletariat. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it's just, it's a mess. This is such an incredible mess. And, you know, we got this piece of the Daily Beast that breaks down the, what they call the 10 most explosive revelations from Woodward's new book. Now, most of these I did not find to, I've, to fit the qualification or the description is explosive. Like a lot of this stuff didn't shock me at all to, and to the extent that it's true. I don't know that it's necessarily even particularly newsworthy. You know, the first one that they talk about Trump mocked Jeff Sessions accent and called him mentally retarded. Now, if that's true, is that really explosive? Like is, is this something that is truly newsworthy, shocking, changes our opinion, changes the course of public policy? No, not at all. White House lawyer wanted to prevent idiot Trump from testifying to Mueller. So apparently one of his lawyers thinks he's an idiot. I think I, that SNL is mad that they're stealing their material. Honestly, like there's nothing here that I wouldn't assume to be true about Donald Trump and about the White House and about the people that are surrounding him. And so, you know, the idea of this this book being explosive is something that I think is is nothing but marketing. The interesting aspect of this, the the coverage of this book and the response to this book, however, I think that uh, it was John Kelly, John Kelly and an, at least one other st- staffer, Jim Mattis, I believe, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, both of these gentlemen categorically denied the accounts that are presented regarding them and comments that they made about Trump in this book. And these are not men who you can call liars lightly. You know, these are men who are honorable. These are men who have credentials and qualifications. And so if they're saying it would be one thing if they were just not done, if they were keeping quiet, if they weren't responding, but for them to come out and say, these stories are not true calls into question the veracity of those accounts and potentially the entire book. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Twin Cities News Talk. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join us at 651-989-5855. We've been talking about the anonymous New York Times op-ed allegedly written by a senior Trump administration official and the response by the White House. Everything about this story is crazy. 651-989-5855. Brad Omlin taking your calls, producing the show. Let's go to Tom in Bloomington. Welcome to the story. Hey, Walter. Listen to your show. I love it. Thank you. Um, I heard the call last night from the guy who, uh, from Johnny rights come from the military. Yeah. I think he was just mixed up. I, I couldn't figure out where he was going, but he, I don't think he was comfortable. Sure. With regard to this, uh, uh, this op ed, I, I don't believe it. I, I'm sorry. I, I think that the guy who wrote the piece probably could have been the one who wrote it. I mean, they have been dialing it up this way ever since Trump got in office. And every few months, they keep coming back with the mental stability thing. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, and they keep finding ways to try to dig into this to undermine the voters. Really, they're trying to they're trying to get yeah. more votes for the other side. I mean, you you hit upon you hit upon a, a piece that we didn't touch on when we first talked about it last segment, which is the, the author, whoever the author is, does evoke this twenty fifth amendment notion that that there's a way that you could get get uh, Mike Pence in there and basically declare Trump as uh, incapable of performing his duties based upon some sort of mental instability, which was an early leftist talking point, you know, talking about that that's one of the paths that they were going to take to try to get Trump out of office. And it seemed as though it had quickly been sort of dismissed as that's silly. That's not something that's actually being taken seriously by anyone. And now it's popped up again here in this, this op-ed, which is interesting. I don't think they're going to quit. I, uh, and I think that, you know, I'm getting close to retirement and I have a host of friends from here in the cities out in the country. And we basically look at this as just fodder. We, we don't, we don't look at this as something we pay attention to. Now, when it comes to Trump, this is one thing that drives me crazy. He will he will entertain these things. I swear it's a game for him. Mm-hmm. He, it's fun. And I don't find this entertaining at all. I just what? wish he'd shut up. I, I, I agree. I agree. I agree. I appreciate the call. I appreciate the call, Tom. Yeah, I mean that's that's just it is I agree with Tom on both those points. The first one being this does not move the needle politically. There was another article in the stack talking about how Trump's approval rating basically held up within the margin of error. It was statistically insignificant, like it was like a two point drop he took that that week that uh Paul Manafort was convicted and that Michael Cohen copped a plea deal. He went from 42% approval to 40, which is within the margin of error and statistically insignificant. And that speaks to the fact that this type of stuff, and we said it at the time, we said you can analyze this legally, analyze it politically and analyze it morally. And when it comes to the political analysis, this needle is not going to move. There is nothing new that is going to come out. There's nothing new that's going to drop that's going to change anybody's mind about Donald Trump. People have have baked everything into the cake. They've priced everything into the equation, into their consideration. They're not moving on him politically. But what this story can do, what this episode can do, is it can undermine the productivity and the effectiveness of the administration by throwing a big stink bomb in the White House and getting them all to look at each other sideways and wonder who the traitor is and not be able to engage in the types of conversations that you need to be able to have where there's a certain level of trust in order to move forward with their agenda. And I think that was the the tactical objective here by both the New York Times and whoever wrote this piece. Let's talk to Chuck in Blaine. Welcome to the program. Hey, hey. This story is just bullcrap. It's uh, been put out there. It has no author to it. It's basically been picked up by fake news. It's being distributed around. I was on the board, and we had complaints without names. You know where they went? The trash can. And I do not know why I'm not hearing more from kind of a conservative radio that it's garbage. It's worthless. Um, There's no way to back it up to prove it. And basically, 
it, it's just it's frustrating just how this thing's being fanned and kept alive. I expect it from one side because they pretty much own their hand, but for the other side to even debate the situation, it has no name, no way to prove it. It should be right in the garbage can. Well, I mean, the, I, I would say, I would argue that the person who's lending it the most amount of credence is Donald Trump. I, I agree with you on that. And it's, that's one sometimes he's just got to put the Twitter down because it's basically you and I could just, uh, hey, let's make something up, throw it up undocumented, and call it a fact. Right. And if it's picked up, there it goes. One lie becomes a fact. And I honestly think this is just. This is just more of the same coming from the hound dogs within. I appreciate your thoughts, Chuck. Appreciate you calling the program. Let's go to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome. Thanks. So I wonder if the left doesn't fight the way they choose to fight because they know in their hearts that they're wrong and they have to make out everybody that doesn't believe the way they do is evil so that they can justify doing what they're doing. The, and then the right doesn't fight that way because they they feel pity for people like that. I I think that I, I appreciate your thoughts, Barry. I hold to a view that's similar to Barry's characterization, but different in a significant way. My my thought is that part of what informs the left's sense of righteous indignation and total war and their their fake moral authority that they assume and what have you. What informs it is that they have tied up their entire sense of self-worth and significance into things that are not significant at all. Things like race, things like gender, things like class, things like income, like your job, like your position in, in society, your position in life, what you do for a living. They've tied up their entire sense of self-worth into these things. And when something comes along that, or when they perceive something that threatens that sense of self-worth, it's, it's an attack upon who they are as a person and their entire sense of self. And so it, it feeds into this sense of urgency. And the reason why folks on the right typically generally do not respond in kind is because this for uh, look, speaking for myself personally, Politics is something that I I also do, right? Like, it's it's a asterisk in the person of Walter Hudson. It's not what I'm about. It's not my primary thing. Yeah, I've got a radio show. Yeah, I've been an activist. Yeah, I've been involved in the Republican Party. But when I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to be thinking about all the conventions I went to. I'm not going to be thinking about all the, the posts I wrote for PJ Media or the shows I did here on Twin Cities News Talk. I'm going to be thinking about my family. I'm going to be thinking about my relationship with God. I'm going to be thinking about eternity. My sense of significance is wrapped up in something transcendent and not something terrestrial. And that's the difference between us and them, or one of the many differences, broadly speaking, I think, that that informs the difference in behavior. Let's talk to Bob in Woodbury. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hey, that was very philosophical of you there. Um, say, I, I think it's a catch-22, this op-ed, in the sense that, on the one hand, let's say it's fake news. Well, that supports what Trump and other people have been saying about fake news, right. that people are making stuff up that uh, are, that is intended to harm him. And on the other hand, let's say it is true, mm-hmm. well, then it goes to the to the, the notion of the deep state yep. <laughs> that there are people inside a government right 
that uh, that rather than trying to do their duty, mm-hmm. uh, are are trying to oppose and wait right. out Trump and um, uh, et cetera to right. um, you know to 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 do what they want to do, not what the elected president of the United States wants to do, right. even though it clearly as president is his uh, prerogative to do these. Yeah, things. he got elected; they didn't. And that's pretty much all I had. I appreciate the observation, I'll Bob. Uh, very, very keen and very apropos. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. Twin Cities News Talk dot com. Just tripped upon a great piece written in the Atlantic, which is not a right wing source, by David Frum who thinks of himself as a conservative, but, uh, you know, he's marginally such. That's nonetheless, nonetheless makes a great point. You know, he puts in other terms exactly what we've been analyzing here about this anonymous op-ed in the New York Times from a senior Trump official that criticizes the president. He writes, impeachment is a constitutional mechanism. The 25th Amendment is a constitutional mechanism. Mass resignations followed by voluntary testimony to congressional committees are a constitutional mechanism. Overt defiance of presidential authority by the president's own appointees, that's a constitutional crisis. If the president's closest advisors believe that he is morally and intellectually unfit for his high office, they have a duty to do their utmost to remove him from it by the lawful means at hand. That duty may be risky to their careers in government or afterward, but on their first day at work, they swore an oath to defend the Constitution, and there were no riskiness exemptions in the text of that oath. And this is the point that I was getting after earlier when I talked about the fact, you know, I could understand the New York Times publishing an anonymous op-ed if the person's life was in danger. You know, and we can argue to the, the degree to which you know, anybody's life is in danger from yahoos who are going to issue death threats against you if you take a strong political stance. But the the fact of the matter is that if, in fact, what this person, male, female, whatever, is saying in this op-ed is true, then you would think that there's an obligation to step forward, put your name on it, and do something more than just shoot out an anonymous op-ed. David Fromm continues at The Atlantic. The author of the anonymous op-ed is hoping to vindicate the reputation of like-minded senior Trump staffers. See, we only look complicit. Actually, we're the real heroes of the story. But what the author has just done is throw the government of the United States into even more dangerous turmoil. He or she has inflamed the paranoia of the president and empowered the president's willfulness. What happens the next time a staffer seeks to dissuade the president from, say, purging the Justice Department? to shut down Robert Mueller's investigation. The author of the Times op-ed has explicitly told the president that those who offer such advice do not have the president's best interest at heart and are, in fact, actively subverting his best interests as he understands them on behalf of ideas of their own. He'll grow more defiant, more reckless, more anti-constitutional, and more dangerous. And that, again, is David Fromm writing at The Atlantic, who obviously is not a fan of the president, obviously is not a fan of the Trump. But but nonetheless, his characterization here is a more-to-the-point version of, of what we were saying early in the program tonight, 
which is that the effect of this, regardless of its authenticity, regardless of its veracity, the effect of putting out an anonymous, a, an anonymous op-ed, supposedly from a senior Trump official, is to make things completely unworkable within the White House. Donald Trump cannot proceed effectively under these conditions where he doesn't know who he can trust, where he doesn't know who the mole is, or moles, plural. It's a very difficult position from which to operate moving forward, and I don't see a clear way out of it. I don't see how you, you know, like I say, you could fire everybody, but then who do you hire, (laughs) and how do you vet them? And what do you do the next time somebody puts an anonymous op-ed out there? Uh, I don't know. This, 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 moving forward with this is going to require the type of fundamental, insightful, thoughtful, strategic decision-making that, unfortunately, I'm not sure this administration is capable of. So it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward. A story I wanted to get to uh, from Faithwire, former Cosby Show star Jeffrey Owens Schools, though, shaming him for his Trader Joe's job. Jeffrey Owens, a former star of the 1990s sitcom The Cosby Show, who gained a lot of attention after it was discovered that he's been working at Trader Joe's, is speaking out about being shamed for his job and the dignity of work. Owens first gained attention after a shopper spotted the actor working at the grocery store and told the Daily Mail about the discovery. Other outlets quickly picked up the news, and they share a variety of tweets along the subject. Then on Tuesday, during an interview with ABC's Good Morning America, Owens opened up about his experience. I've been teaching, acting, directing for 30-plus years, but got to a point where it just didn't add up enough, he said, wearing his Trader Joe's name tag. You got to do what you got to do. I wanted a job where I could have some flexibility to stay in the business. Owens said he was initially devastated he gained so much attention over his job at Trader Joe's, which... He's had for 15 months and said the public reaction hurt initially, but the flood of positive responses quickly helped. Now he's thankful for the opportunity. He told host Robin Roberts he hopes the conversation reminds people of the honor of the working person and the dignity of work. There is no job that's better than another job, he said. It might pay better. It might have better benefits, look better on a resume or on paper, but actually it's not better. Every job is worthwhile and valuable, he said. And, you know, I, that's a good sentiment to end the show on tonight. And I think what I think what Owens is saying there is not that, you know, he's not speaking to economic value, right? Because obviously some jobs are more economically valuable than other jobs. That's why people make different amounts of money. What he's speaking to is the moral value of work itself. The idea that you're going to mock somebody on account of what they do for a living, it, there's, there's something reprehensible underlying that you know if a person is willing to get up and go to work and and they're willing to do whatever it takes in order to provide for themselves and their family that's something that ought to be honored and ought to be treated with dignity no matter what the work actually entails and this is this is something that i think is represented well in the old series dirty jobs with mike rowe and the work that he's done in terms of trying to overcome the stigma that's developed in the culture regarding blue collar work and working with your hands and getting dirty and doing what needs to be done, doing what has value in society and doing what it takes to make a living. It's a, it's a heartwarming story there from Jeffrey Owens. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.